Summertime and the living is It's summer. Time to travel to a beautiful location, relax, and enjoy some music. Which apparently is what all of the classical musicians do, because we can't find any to do classical classroom episodes in town. So, we headed to the hills. And lo, we discovered there are these magical musical oases, oasises, whatever, called classical music festivals. Every summer, students, performers, and orchestras spend their supposed time off making yet more music. Each year, a classical classroom is going to highlight a different festival. We're starting this summer at one of the premier festivals in Aspen, Colorado. The Aspen Music Festival in school is one of the top classical music festivals in the U.S. Over 300 classical music events are packed into eight weeks. Aspen attracts students from all over the world. It also attracts world-renowned performers and teachers. And while they're there, we're going to have some on our show. We hope you enjoy traveling to Aspen with us. Come along, won't you? Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Classical Classroom. I'm Daisha Clay, and here with me today, so awesome, is Orly Shaham. Orly is currently at the Aspen Music Festival, and we'll get to that in just a bit. Uh, she received her first music scholarship when she was just five years old to study with uh, Louisa, and I'm going to say this wrong, Yafi? Yofe. Yofe. Okay. At the Rubin Academy <laughs> of Music in Jerusalem. She studied at Juilliard and at Columbia University. She has a passion for bringing music to new audiences and does some really creative outreach. She actually had a show on the radio that she hosted called Dial a Musician, whereon she did just that. Um, she was an artist in residence at Performance Today, and she has an interactive concert series for young kids called Baby Got Bach. Um, she's performed all all over the world with a gazillion major orchestras, and her latest CD is called Brahms Inspired. Orly Shaham, welcome to the Classical Classroom. I am thrilled to be here, and I love that you say it's awesome that I'm here. That's great. Only my kids <laughs> ever say that. <laughs> <laughs> I have been accused of being a large child, so that, that could be. The <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's mutual. <laughs> <laughs> so so before we get into the music, let's let's talk about what you're doing in Aspen. What What are you doing at the festival? Well, you know, it's kind of interesting. I thought as you were sort of uh, talking about my bio, I thought, well, I really should say in there that I was a student at the Aspen Music Festival for about a decade really? uh, before I became uh, a professional coming to the Aspen Music Festival. So I, I kind of feel like I grew up here and I, I used to spend nine weeks every summer in Aspen from uh, actually literally prenatal age because <laughs> I was born in November, but my parents had been here the summer before. <laughs> oh, your, your parents were also music- musicians. No, actually, my father was a physicist, and there was a <laughs> wonderful physics institute here in Aspen, which was, you know, world famous. And we, my parents used to come all the way from Israel for the physics center every summer. And that was long before we had any connection with the music. Uh, and it was you know, little by little that we kind of got attracted to the music, musical side and eventually we split. You know, dad would go to the physics and we would go to the music school. And over time, it became, you know, we, that I would come back here as a professional every year to perform. Mm-hmm. And I have to say, there's there's really no 
better place on the planet to make music. Uh, and and also, I'm assuming you spend a lot of time skiing and and hiking in I the mountains. I cannot ski to save my life. <laughs> <laughs> I can't either. Actually, 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 maybe literally, I cannot ski in order to save my life because if I tried to ski. <laughs> but I do, I, I do love the summers here, and I do a lot of hiking, and I do a lot of biking, and, you know, it's just, it's just gorgeous here. And even when it's pouring rain, it's yeah. incredible. And there's something about the lack of oxygen that makes everything more fun. <laughs> <laughs> So do you do you go to festivals every summer? Do you always go to Aspen? Is it like what's your festival circuit look like? That's a great question, actually, because it's just recently changed in my life. Up until two years ago, I went to festivals every summer, and I would do the thing of, you know, four days here, four days there, all beautiful places, drag the kids around, have a great time, and be totally exhausted by the time the summer is finished. <laughs> and last summer, I decided that maybe... Maybe it's time for a change. And so last summer, I actually didn't do a single festival, including Aspen. I skipped Aspen. Wow. And I spent the time immersed in the music of uh, the late piano music of Brahms. And <clears throat> I had the most productive five weeks I've had in years. Wow. Uh, and I just loved it. So this summer, I'm doing a kind of combination. I'm doing very few festivals. I'm doing only Aspen and uh, Orcas Island Festival. That's mm -hmm. it. And I'm taking time off while in Aspen, now that my concerts are mostly finished, to do the same thing, immerse myself in, in the, next, the next big repertoire uh, blitz. Boy, you musicians are such hard workers. It's summertime and you're like, you know, I'm just, I'm just going to go to two festivals and be super productive <laughs> and then go, I don't know, create some new music. That's, <laughs> this is your time off. <laughs> you know, but it's so inspiring to be in these beautiful mountains. And I think maybe because I was here as a student, I remember what pieces I worked on every summer of my childhood. And, you know, even which practice room I learned how to do the trill wow. and thirds in and that sort of thing. And there's something about that connection that I get here and, yeah, I want to spend the time outside. And I, my dog wishes we spent more time outside. <laughs> but, but I also just want to be sitting at the piano here. There's something about the air. You just, you, you really, you feel very inspired here. That's really neat to be able to revisit something that you have those kinds of memories at and to get to do it over it, and over again. Very Proustian, you know. I see yeah. uh, aspen trees and I think, go practice. <laughs> <laughs> That's, wow. Uh, well, uh, let's talk about you. You said that, that you took the, the last summer off from festivals and worked on this Brahms CD. Yeah, absolutely. I, um, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm really fascinated by how great composers think and what motivates them to write what it is that they're writing. And even somebody as inspired as Brahms, particularly in these late piano pieces, which are really sort of the pinnacle of, of writing, even someone like him did not compose in a vacuum. He, uh, he took all of his ideas from what was in the air, from what he studied. He was deeply involved in studying the music of the past, so much so that he himself edited a lot of the first editions, for example, of Chopin's music, of Schubert's music, of Schumann's music. So I started with that premise, the idea of, well, what music inspired Brahms and mm -hmm. how do you get there? And then I realized he's really a, a sort of a, a link in the chain, and the chain continues past him, and his music has continued to inspire other composers uh, through to the present day. So there's some music on this CD as well of, of Schoenberg, who was very directly inspired by Brahms, but didn't necessarily say so in so many words. Mm -hmm. And there are a, a number of commissioned pieces 
one of which was actually commissioned by Emmanuel X and the other is by, by me, where we specifically asked the composers to be inspired by late Brahms. Huh. And uh, they were thrilled at the opportunity. I mean, it's amazing how quickly they all jumped and said, well, of course, because <laughs> frankly, frankly, they already are inspired by late Brahms in what they do. And m- most composers are in one way or another. Yeah, Brahms is an interesting figure. You know, I've only had a, a couple of shows where we've talked about him. And, and anytime we sort of focus on a composer, I try to get the, the guests to to teach me what it is that's so memorable about this this particular composer. And, and what I learned was just that Brahms was very good at conveying intimate emotion. And you know, absolutely, he speaks directly to your soul uh, yeah. in a way that very, very few other composers do. And what's what's fascinating for me is that he does this. You would think that therefore it's very intuitive writing, but in fact, it's very intellectual writing. It's kind mm-hmm. of uh, as intellectual as it gets, mm-hmm. as thoughtful as it gets. And somehow he gets to the emotion through that that thinking. It's this wonderful combination of logic and emotion. And we could get neurologists to go and figure out what's firing <laughs> in his brain. <laughs> Yeah, well, d- but I think I think I think that's also what inspires the contemporary composers because I think they feel the same thing is that they want to get this kind of emotional reaction from you, but they are thoughtful people who have studied their craft and they they do want to put it together in a logical, coherent way. Well, why why these particular living composers? Why did why did you choose these guys? That's a, a really good question, and I'll, I'll, I'll tell you the story slightly backwards. So I picked Bruce Adolph uh, because, in fact, he was my theory teacher when I was a student, and he was the first one who taught me the real uh, depths and magic of Brahms's writing. So as a theorist, he comes to Brahms's composition from the theorist's and composer's point of view, and he really got very in-depth into what, why Brahms chose this note over another or that note over another and, and how he would fit them together. So I knew he would be just perfect to kind of channel Brahms's technique and put it into the 21st century. Mm-hmm. And I picked, um, I picked Avner Dorman because I, I do think he is probably one of the smartest, uh, most intellectual composers in history. Mm-hmm. And uh, we've had great success with him. My brother Gil and I commissioned a sonata from him a, a couple of years ago, which was an incredible piece. And I just, I had this feeling and that as a pianist also who knows the instrument, feels it that way, he would he would take this in a really interesting direction. And he did, and I think maybe we'll get a little bit more in depth on that in a minute. But the, the story of the Brett Dean piece is... Um, a perfect story of serendipity. So I, uh, <laughs> before I went into the first recording session, I thought, well, I, I want to play these Brahms pieces for somebody I really admire and just kind of get their take on it. And so I went in to play for Emmanuel Axe, who is a, a good friend. And we, I played them for him, and he, he had in, incredibly uh, powerful words of encouragement. And then we sat and talked about the project. And I said, well, and I'm commissioning these other composers, and I'm I've got Avner Dorman already, and I've got Bruce Adolph, and I'm about to call Brett Dean. Mm-hmm. And Manny went into the other room, you know, like a, like a kid who just discovered a new toy, kind of ran into the <laughs> other room and came back with a score. And he said, really? Because this just arrived in my house last week. And sure enough, Brett Dean had just written a piece for, for Manny, which was specifically premised on 
Opus 119 of Brahms, the last of the piano works, and it's meant to be played in between the pieces of Brahms's wow. work. So Brahms has four movements, and these are three movements that are supposed to slip in between those. So I was, I was really uh, honored that Manny, is, who is such a generous person, said, sure, you can record these. Uh, wow. <laughs> and that, that's what I've done. Well, A, I love that you call Emmanuel Axe Manny. And <laughs> and B, maybe we should start with that Brett Dean piece. Should we hear some of that? Absolutely. I think I, I would be thrilled to do every movement. But maybe why don't I talk a little bit about the first movement? You let me know what you think. Yeah, that sounds great. And then we'll see if we want to do his second. So his first movement, which would be that um, the Engelsflügel 1. Okay. He begins with these open fifths, these chords that almost sound like they're a string instrument uh, played on the piano, which is not surprising because he himself is a violist. And when you know a composer's instrument, that always helps figure out what it is that motivates their writing. Mm-hmm. And these notes just kind of flow across the keyboard. And, and Brett has said the reason these are these open fifths rather than full and complete chords is because of Brahms's life story, sort of the question of what was missing, what was always not by his side, mm-hmm. uh, namely Clara Schumann, whom he had loved so deeply and who didn't ever become his official partner in any way, although they were great friends. Yeah. And so he puts this feeling of kind of openness in his music. I love that beginning. That's very cool. Then he takes us to a kind of slightly different sound world. And I don't know what it is about the way he puts together these chords that's so Brahmsian, but it has that very nostalgic feeling that Brahms always seems to get. And he comes back to that figure that kind of just swirls around the keyboard and always feels like it's searching for something. I have no idea what, but something in this reminds me of like WC's piano music. There is something to that. And I think Brahms admired what he was beginning to hear from Debussy and from the the French Impressionists Mm, greatly. And he finishes off the movement back with this other theme, this nostalgic idea. Once once the piano gets as quiet as possible. Mm -hmm. And almost, he gives you a lot of space to think. Uh Uh-huh. Yeah. And now we're back to the nostalgic theme. I think there's something in the way that the theme has these kind of big leaps, but is also very calm, uh-huh. that feels very Brahmsian. It's yearning, it's striving, it's, it's getting somewhere distant. Yeah. And he has a beautiful ending to this movement, which begins here. 
it's so it's so delicate sounding. It's very. It's almost like this very fragile sound of like falling very slowly or something like that. And there's even in that ending, he recalls those open fifth sounds that da 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 mm-hmm. that we heard in the beginning. Yeah. And so there's that that uh, the rhetorical aspect of nostalgia, which is literally bringing back something that you had heard in the beginning of the piece uh-huh. and recalling it. So yeah. whether or not you notice that it's exactly the same interval, something in your brain says, "I've I've encountered that before," and it gives you that feeling, you know. And yeah. and um, ever since, well really ever since Baroque times, but certainly ever since Beethoven, composers have been quite concerned with rhetoric Mm -hmm. and how to make their argument uh, to your emotions. And Beethoven, in fact, studied deeply uh, the Greeks and all of their treatises on rhetoric and, Mm -hmm. you know, how you should design your speech in order to move the people. And he used those same techniques in his music. This continued for sure for Brahms. And here's Brett Dean using exactly the same kind of ideas to make you feel like you're in that space. Yeah, it's very meta because it's a piece that's sort of nostalgic sounding wherein he uses that that sort of power of nostalgia literally in the music comes back to what he was doing before. And it's it's pretty cool. brilliant, huh? Yeah, that's wow. <laughs> Love it. Love it. So this particular this particular piece of Brett Dean's, uh, which has a wonderful title by the way, Engelsflugel, which could mean two different things in German. It could mean the wings of an angel mm-hmm. or it could mean the grand piano of an angel. <laughs> uh, which is a, a nice little pun. <laughs> <laughs> that's great. So that that particular piece follows Brahms's Opus 119 number 1. And for me, Brahms's Opus 119 number 1 is really seminal. This was a piece where I think he knew these were going to be his last piano works and he was saying, "Here's where you guys should go next. I see, you know, what what's in the wind. I I see the dissonances that we need to embrace more and I see where music needs to develop." And in fact, he wrote a letter to Clara Schumann. She was like his you know that one buddy you have was just a little more conservative than you are? Uh-huh. Plays things a little safer than you. <laughs> right. <laughs> That's who Clara was. And um, Brahms writes to her that, you know, he's put in these dissonances and he really thinks it's time for her to to start embracing those and to go with some of these slightly more harsh, maybe stringent sounds. <laughs> and so... So his Opus 119, number one, to me, that particular intermezzo opens the door to the 20th century and 20th century harmony. Maybe we could listen to just a little bit of how that begins, which is with these falling thirds. And Um, then maybe to the, the very ending of it, the last, I don't know, 15, 20 seconds of it. Okay. Now, when you are building harmony in music, mm-hmm. it's the bottom that tells you what the harmony is. So by having his notes fall down, cascade from the top down, Brahms is changing your sense of what the harmony is at every pitch. Uh-huh. You think it's one thing, but it goes further. It's 
kind of like building your sentence from the last word forward. <laughs> it kind of reminds me of that movie, Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind. Yes. When he loses all of his memories, starting from most, I think he started, like it starts from most recent, and then... And, and I think if we're looking for an, uh, a modern-day intellectual equivalent of Brahms, Jim Carrey is <laughs> right up there. Exactly. <laughs> Definitely. So in this, in this section, Brahms is doing, this is his middle section, and a lot of these pieces are in that format. They have a one, one part, the A section, and then what we call the, the middle section or the B section, which is different. In this case, much more outwardly emotional mm-hmm. before he will then later come back to that a section, but with some changes. And here are those falling thirds again at the end, uh-huh. redefining your sense of where you are all along. And the very last one just gets me. It starts here. finally resolves. So he's taken wow. this idea of the falling thirds and you don't quite know where you are in, in the harmony, where in your foundation, and he takes it uh, many, many, many steps further than was acceptable in the harmony of the day. Uh-huh. And to me, that opens the door to pretty much all of 20th century jazz, particularly Mm -hmm. the sort of 50s and 60s, those really thick, dense, what we call 13th chords. Mm -hmm. um, They come right out of that piece. And it's this sense, this feeling of, you know, what's next and yet yearning for what was because it's still based in the same ideas. That's that's where that Brett Dean piece comes right out of. Yeah, I was going to say. And and it's also where Avner Dorman took his inspiration for the second of his uh, after Brahms intermezzi, which are the ones he wrote for this CD. Uh-huh. Yeah, let's hear some so, of that. Well, for, I just want to say a little thing about the title. You know, it's oh, called yeah. After Brahms. Um, and like Brett Dean's title with multiple meaning, you know, After Brahms means literally, chronologically, After Brahms. Uh-huh. Uh, and of course, it means After Brahms as in, in the style of Brahms. Right. And also After Brahms as in searching, you know, I'm, I'm after, I'm chasing, I'm trying to catch. <laughs> so Avner, Avner's taken that pun, you know, <laughs> one more level. Uh-huh. He takes that idea that Brahms has put forth. It's kind of like, you know, Brahms... Um, took the pawn and moved it in one direction on the chessboard, and Avner says, all right, I'll see you. Uh, I'm going to meet you right there with my knight. And he takes that falling thirds idea, and he makes it very late 20th, early 21st century, very jazzy, very, it really speaks, because he just, he takes it that extra step. This is what the, the very beginning of that one sounds like. creates a kind of loop where that idea is going to come back now. (laughs) 
same falling thirds, but it's never the same number of them each time. Mm-hmm. He's great at playing with your sense of rhythm. It's never the same twice. continues inevitably, Mm. inexorably, those descending, those thirds, that interval that keeps going down, just keeps Mm. going down all the way. Wow. And then just like Brahms, he puts in a middle section, which is contrasting in character. The Brahms one would have been very popular music for the day. Mm -hmm. And I think this one has a bit of like I don't know, it's like a pulsating Billy Joel number. (laughs) And Dorman is great at building a climax. Just like in the Brahms, now this this main idea of the falling thirds comes back. Mm-hmm. But he has the left hand doing rising thirds against it. Thirds have to fall. <laughs> and he works up to a beautiful chord coming up. Very jazzy. This next one, too. <laughs> and my favorite. Oh, yeah, baby. <laughs> and then he takes those thirds as far as they will go down the keyboard. And of the many wow. cool things about that, one great thing is that the last three pitches that end up coming out of the keyboard way down at the bottom, mm-hmm. 
turn out to have been the very first three pitches, both of Avner's piece and also of Brahms's piece. And so it's like he's wow. taken the whole idea full circle in this very neat little way. Well, I love how I love how it had the this this sort of like the the other two pieces, it had this very sort of gentle, fragile sort of feel to it, this this sense of falling. And then it had that crazy climax in the in the middle. Mm. There was all dissonant notes. It sounded almost yes. like a like you were saying, like a Billy Joel piano man style, you know, uh, performing at a club. But like the pianist is a little too drunk and has gone yeah, it's crazy. Like, has had and, one too many. Yeah, and then he kind of like settles down and and like falls back down. Okay, okay, I'll behave. <laughs> <You know>? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that was neat. One of the things that I really loved about uh, Avner Dorman's pieces is that he wrote these three pieces, and they're really different from each other. The the and the, but the first two are very specifically, and he he says as as much. They are paraphrases of particular pieces by Brahms. And then in the third one, he just really went his own way. And what's interesting is, to me, the third one actually sounds the most like Brahms. Yeah. Uh, whereas the one, the ones where he's paraphrasing sound much more like Dorman. <laughs> so the other composer, Bruce Adolph, does he, like, does he paraphrase? Does he kind of go in his own direction? Or, like, how does he approach Brahms? What, what he's done is he's taken specific ideas from Brahms. There's an almost quotation from the last of Brahms's Opus 118 pieces, uh-huh. uh, which has a kind of a dies irae motive uh-huh. to it. Yeah, he's, He takes that, but he, he turns it around so that it, it ends up having a completely different meaning. But I think you'll find that his music really feels like Brahms. Hmm. There were some falling thirds there, in case you didn't notice. (laughs) (laughs) I thought that sounded familiar. It takes all these technical Brahmsian elements, two against three, which is a typical rhythmic uh, thing that Brahms does. Mm -hmm. But in the 21st century, we're so much more attuned to things like overtones. Mm -hmm. So he adds these chords on top, which relate to how he hears... Brahms' Opus 116 mm-hmm. and how those overtones work, totally different from how Brahms would have thought of it, but I'm sure an extension, the next level of what Brahms would have been thinking about. Yeah. And he, right here he puts in a really beautiful melody, typical Bruce Adolph. Typical Bruce. <laughs> That's the melody that's taken from Brahms's 116, but Bruce turns it around to give it a completely different feeling. Nice. And he also does a beautiful job of taking each of the different lines of music and moving them from one place to the other, from the top to the bottom to the middle. he takes the tail end of that theme and makes it the theme of his middle section. And his middle section is in a much lighter, freer rhythm. Very Bruce Adolph, but also very much inspired by how Brahms did his. This piece doesn't let you rest very much, does it? 
But it does. It kind of dances. It floats. Yeah. It, it's up in the air. never mistake this for any other time period than the 21st century except that it feels like Brahms. <laughs> mm. And then he does this huge climax to come back to the, his main section mm. with these chords that are held. And what's so cool is I, I asked, you know, three, three composers, three completely different reactions, right? So uh -huh. Bruce Adolph writes a specific intermezzo, which incorporates a lot of ideas from many different late Brahms pieces. Mm -hmm. um, Avner Dorman writes three totally different intermezzi that are sort of based in Brahms, and two of them are, you know, almost quotations. Mm -hmm. uh, they're really paraphrases and, and develops them in a different way. And Brett Dean decides to take pieces that don't sound anything like Brahms in that way, but that would fit in somehow between the works of Brahms, which which is literally what an intermezzo is, right? Mm -hmm. An intermezzo is a piece that goes in between. Um, and so two, three completely different approaches from a harmonic point of view, from a melodic point of view, from a formal point of view, you know, the kind of form they used, and yet all appropriate. And the reaction I've been getting as I play these in recitals around the country is, you know, in the end, it all sounded like Brahms, <laughs> which I think is a great compliment to all of them. <laughs> well, I, I had no idea, like you were pointing out, the letter that Brahms wrote to Clara and then the piece that we listened to right <laughs> after that. I had no idea that Brahms was such a progressive guy. You know, that's actually what partly what launched me into this project in the first place. There is this vision, this uh, reputation Brahms has for being a historicist. And in fact, this was an argument that went on during his lifetime. Is, mm -hmm. is Brahms a historicist or a progressive historicist or progressive? And you know, I, I think he's a he's a shoe polish and a floor wax. I mean, he's a <laughs> historicist and a progressive. In huh. fact, he was backward looking in the sense that he, he, you know, he was a student. He always felt like he didn't know enough. And so he studied everybody else's writing. Mm -hmm. In that sense, he was a historicist. But he knew that the world continues. And what he was trying to do was figure out the progression. You know, where is it going to next? And in fact, it was Schoenberg uh, very shortly after Brahms's death, who uh, came out with a, a paper explaining, you know, no, he Brahms was really a progressive, and it, you can hear it in Schoenberg's music as well. Huh. That re, the reaction to Brahms's writing. Huh. Do you want to listen to a little bit of the Schoenberg? Maybe if we, if we just do the very first piece of the Schoenberg, I can talk about a few little things that are very Brahmsian yeah, in it. That'd be really cool. I know you got dog walking to do. No, it's okay. He's having a nap. <laughs> Thank you. 
there's something very lyrical about Chernberg's writing. Mm-hmm. It's very sparse. There's not much. Mm-hmm. But each note means so much. The piano becomes so rich in his hands, very Brahmsian. Hmm. Each line follows its own course mm-hmm. within the hands. And that nostalgia is always there. Mm-hmm. This is one of my favorite moments. That entire line could have been written by Brahms. But he finishes it with a question mark to the future. I mean, I think that piece wow. is very much not not only channeling Brahms, but reacting to Brahms mm-hmm. and sort of saying, okay, here's what we do with these lines. Here's how we take it to the next level. This is very early Schoenberg, uh, but this is what he was dealing with as a composer as he found his own way. Was he sort of grappling with his affinity for the works of Brahms and his inspiration that he found in I Brahms? Think he adored the music of Brahms, but he felt like... Uh, the world was moving on mm-hmm. uh, and the world was moving on you know this is we're talking about the very beginning of the 20th century mm-hmm. uh, and the world was becoming more violent and more dissonant uh, it, certainly in our in the, the, our sort of immediate world and it was becoming smaller things were coming yeah. into his world that uh, now we take for granted but that wouldn't have existed for anybody in that part of Europe 50 years before I love how you said that that, that ended on a question mark So on that note, we are going to end our discussion not on a question mark, but on an exclamation point. (laughs) Orly Shaham, thank you so much for being on The Classical Classroom. This has been an incredible discussion. My pleasure. As you can tell, I love this stuff. Yeah, you seem to like it a little bit. (laughs) Like you're kind of into it. (laughs) What what else do you have going on in Aspen today besides uh, walking the dog? Well, today is easy. I I had three concerts in three days last weekend. And so today I have, you know, picking up the kids from camp and maybe going for a swim. Nice. (laughs) Well, go forth, have fun. And it was so great to meet you. Thank you for being on The Classical Classroom. Thank you for having me. It was a a great pleasure. Orly Shaham, everybody. Awesome lady. (laughs) (laughs) All right, everybody, that does it for this episode of Classical Classroom. For more Classroom, go to houstonpublicmedia.org slash classroom. We're also on iTunes. Don't forget, you got to subscribe to us to see all the episodes on iTunes now. We're also on SoundCloud, all the places you can find podcasts like Stitcher and TuneIn, etc., etc. You can follow us on Twitter and Tumblr, or you can send me an email at dclay at houstonpublicmedia.org. Thanks today to audio producer Todd, the great Toddsby Holslander, for twiddling knobs. Thanks to program director Sinjin Flynn for believing in himself and never giving up in his dreams. Thanks to editor Mark DeClaudio for his piercing gargamel eyes. Thanks to intern Nick Dolworth for doing interny stuff. Thanks to Orly Shaham for being here and to the good people at the Aspen Music Festival for helping us connect with her. Thanks to me for saying words, and thanks to you for listening. We'll catch you next time. <laughs>